If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We began a series last week, A Theology of Time. Continue today. Let me review just a bit. Time is difficult for us to understand objectively as human beings. There's a Chinese proverb that tells us, if you want to know what water is, the fish is the last thing to ask. In the same way, we as human beings are immersed in time. We are not able to see time clearly and objectively, to understand it. It is at the heart of our existence. It's the water in which we swim, and therefore something we take for granted, but we don't fully understand. Philosophers and others have tried to come up with answers, sometimes clever answers, over the question of what is time. I mentioned last week a book by Jim Holt, uh, when Einstein walked with, I said, Goodell, uh, excursions to the edge of time. Goodell is actually spelled G-O-D-E-L. There's an umlaut over the O, so it sounds more like girdle, not like the NFL commissioner, Goodell. Albert Einstein was known for his theory of relativity. Kurt Goodell was a logician, mathematician, and analytic philosopher. And in the book, Jim Holt writes, time is nature's way to keep everything from happening all at once. Sounds very profound. Who said that? Einstein? Was it Grinnell? Uh, who, who said this? Well, there's a footnote in which he admits that this was actually something that wasn't from either of these two men, but was actually found on the wall in the men's bathroom at a cafe in Austin, Texas. Um, We began last week by recognizing that time is something God created. And time as a creation has certain implications. One that I mentioned just briefly, and we will come back again to, I hope, in the series, is that time is a gift. It is gift. As all creation is gift from God, time is as well. And therefore, it is to be received with thanksgiving. Every moment that we have is a gift from God. We also saw that God is not limited by time because he is the creator and time is the creation. He stands above creation, outside of it, and yet he is intimately involved with his creation. We saw that time is not infinite, it is limited, but it is also limiting. It limits us. In the same way that you can't walk through a solid wall, uh, you cannot go back in time, go forward in time, just sort of travel through time, even though so much fiction has been based on that premise. The reality is we are stuck, that's the right word, stuck in the present. By memory, we can connect to the past, and by imagination, we can connect with the future. But we live in the present moment. We also saw that as a creation, time has been affected by the fall. It has become a burden. It is oftentimes frustrating. But also we saw that time is redeemable. It is the arena of redemption. There are three in particular dominant uh, and very different views of time. We looked at two of them last week, the cyclical view and the covenantal view. Let me review them briefly and we will go on to the third one, which is the chronological view. The cyclical view tells us that our life is short, but we're not only here once that in fact we get to come back over and over and over again. And so the view of time and history is cyclical. You go through these cycles that each person 
experiences successive incarnations or reincarnations. And then in a sense, everything goes back to where it began. Um, some people refer to reincarnation as transmigration of the soul. I, I think that's somewhat deceptive. I think reincarnation is more of a mathematical formula. It's much closer to math than it is to anything that's metaphysical. That with the karma, you either get points or you lose points and then you come back and then you add or lose points. It's just a mathematical formula. The second view that we saw was the covenantal view. Um, and this is what many in the West hold to without realizing it. They fail to realize that it is in fact radically unique, that it came to us through scripture, through the Jewish people. There are three faiths or three religions that are seen as Abrahamic, that is Abraham is seen as the beginning. There's Judaism, the Jews, Christianity, and Islam. And each of these sees time not as cyclical um, as oftentimes you find it, or not oftentimes, as you find in Hinduism and in Buddhism. The Abrahamic view is based on revelation, not reflection. There is someone outside of time who has revealed to us what time is. It isn't somehow in this in this prison, if you want to call it, of time, that somebody reflected, meditated, and somehow came up with the answer of what time is. The major difference between the two views we've talked about, cyclical and covenantal, is revelation versus reflection. In the Abrahamic view, time is both linear and covenantal. That is, it is going somewhere, but it also involves a relationship with God. God is free and made in his image. We also are free. We are free with a, fathom, or with, with a freedom that we don't fathom, that we cannot really fully understand. But what we have is indeed precious. We have, somehow we are able to apprehend time in a way that other creatures cannot. The implications of this view, I think, are many, but I mentioned only one, and that is that time and history have meaning. We are exceptional. We are made in God's image. We are unique in all of God's creation. We have a consciousness, both a self-consciousness, and therefore we are aware of ourselves, but also a consciousness and an awareness of time. In some sense, we can't get out of time, but we can sort of stand back and have an awareness and an appreciation of it. It means the remote past, the immediate present, and the distant future. This freedom depends on three faculties. First of all, memory. Our awareness of the past is based on memory, and we can bring that information, if you wish, into the present and affect our decisions. Our awareness of time also includes imagination and vision, and this has to do with the future. And our vision of the future also informs our actions in the present. And our awareness of time also includes the will, the freedom we have, the choices that we make. Today we'll look at the third view. This is what we will spend our time on, the chronological view. This is what one might call the third major view of time. But it is very much like the covenantal. It is linear. 
the covenantal is a little shakier, but there is no belief in God, in transcendence, in eternity, or the supernatural. And I think this is one of its great dangers. It sounds very much like the biblical view, but there is no supernatural. There is no divine. It's similar to the covenantal, but quite different from the cyclical when it comes to the matter of eternity. In the cyclical view, eternity is within time. It's like a big wheel. You just keep going over and over again, and that is eternity. Well, with the chronological view, you have time, but there is no eternity. You just keep going and going and going. In Greek, there are at least two words for time, and many of you know this already, but just to remind you. Chronos, from which we get the word chronological, it speaks of time as a sequence, a succession of events or of moments. The other word is kairos, which sees time as significant moments, and that each of these moments is full of meaning and possibility. The example that comes to mind is that of a wedding. If you get an invitation uh, to a wedding, it specifies the time in which or on which the wedding will begin. That is the chronos of the wedding. But the event itself, the wedding, that is the kairos. That's what's significant. And depending on the culture you're in, you have to ask yourself, which is more important? The time of the wedding or the wedding itself? That's why in many cultures, weddings don't start on time, because the time when it's supposed to begin, is that's secondary. We're here for the big event. We're here for a wedding. Kronos is a succession of moments that have no meaning. It's just second, second, tick-tock, tick-tock. The covenantal view says, no, this is simply not acceptable. Every moment is a kairos moment because God can fill it with meaning, a deeper meaning than perhaps we can ever appreciate. And here we come to the biggest difference, the most profound difference between the covenantal view and the chronological view, and that is the source of meaning. In the covenantal view, meaning is as God sees it and knows it to be. The importance, the significance of a moment may not be known to us and known only to God, but it is God who gives it meaning. On the other hand, the chronological view says we are the ones who give each moment meaning. We are the ones who seek to establish the meaning, the importance of a given moment in time. Interestingly, among those who hold to the chronological view, which I would say are many people in our culture today, if not the majority, there are two factions. There are the optimists and there are the pessimists. The optimists think that we can create meaning for each moment in time. This is a feasible project to them. For the pessimists, they simply don't agree. The optimists are the product, they are the children, the descendants of the Enlightenment. Um, and while it may seem strange, they are those who hold that God is dead, as Nietzsche told us. But for them, this is a cause for optimism. We have no need for God. We can give 
importance to each meaning, or each moment, each person, each act, each event. We don't need God to tell us what is important, what has meaning. We can decide that for ourselves. Humanity takes over where God once stood. We can steer the future the way that we want. I think they would acknowledge, many of them would acknowledge, that the ideas of human dignity and truth, freedom, reason, science, progress, all of these are gifts of the Jewish and Christian scriptures, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the time for revelation has passed. This is now the age of reason. And we will take over. Thank you for telling us about God and all that. But we really don't need him. We can take over and do it ourselves. Humanity takes over from God. Evolution would replace creation. Progress in history now stands in the place of heaven. We will build a new heaven and a new earth. We don't need God to provide one. And moral progress is seen as marching hand in hand with technological progress. More on this in a bit. Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, put it this way. A scientific philosophy could fashion a new morality that would turn our earth into a paradise. Technology will lead to morality, which will lead to a paradise. We will, in fact, have a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, He continued, it may be God who made the world, but there is no reason why we should not make it over. He made it, we'll make it over. Another optimist put it this way, impossible? No. For however far modern science and techniques have fallen short, They have taught mankind at least one lesson. Nothing is impossible. If you look at scripture, with God all things are possible. Not with us. But the optimists say, no, all things are possible with us. Another stated, we attain to science and society in spite of God. Every progress is a victory in which we crush the deity. As we move forward, we have no need of God. This is a chronological view of time. Because, remember, the whole aspect of meaning, we don't need God to give meaning to each moment. We will do that ourselves. I think I told you last week that Aldous Huxley uh, said that he found a moment of great liberation when he realized that history had no meaning. And at that point, when I found that, I was uh, completing work on my Ph.D. in history. And I thought, oh my, I'm getting a Ph.D. in something that has no meaning. Well, no. What he meant was, I will give it meaning. That's the chronological view. The covenantal view is that God says, this is what this moment in time means. Faith in God is now something it is believed we can safely cast aside. What's interesting about the optimists is they don't tell us how this is going to happen. Okay, For the most part, they just simply say it will happen The 20th century, I think, is a strong counter-argument to this. When you look at the horrors of the 20th century, the Holocaust, the genocide in Cambodia and such, yeah, I, 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 I think we have problems. Some people saw this early on. The one that comes to mind for me is Goya, the Spanish artist, who wrote on one of his paintings, The Dream of Reason Produces Monsters. You want to get rid of revelation? You want to do reason? (laughs) You're going to end up with monsters. 
As I said, in spite of the horrors of the 20th century, there are still optimists. We now find ourselves uh, surrounded by people who are in the transhumanist movement or the human enhancement movement. Techno-progressivism. This is an organized and at the same time informal movement. It is a philosophical perspective which sees human beings as in the midst of evolution. See, when, when Darwin put forward his theory, I think everyone accepted that, okay, this is good, and we are the top, we are the, at the apex of evolution. And transhumanists say, no, we're actually just one of the steps on the staircase, on the ladder, to a higher form of existence. And so, because of technology, we can actually speed up the system. We can speed up the process. Uh, the co-founder of the World Transhumanist Association said that transhumanists view human nature as a work in progress, a half-baked beginning that we can learn to remold in desirable ways. Current humanity need not be the end point of evolution. No longer are we controlled by nature, it is said, but we are the ones who control nature even our own evolution, it is argued. Uh, the pessimists don't buy this. And as one of them put it, contemporary atheism is a continuation of monotheism by other means. You can't have, in fact, this, this optimism if it is not rooted, in fact, in the covenantal view of time. So this writer continues... Hence, the unending succession of God's surrogates, such as humanity and science, technology, and in the all-too-human visions of transhumanism. People are like, no, we don't believe in God, but they, in fact, set something else in its place, in his place. Just a quick view, a, a few words on pessimists, because ultimately this leads to nihilism, that there's no meaning to time or history. And history becomes something that is terrifying. It becomes a terror. I think you see this fear in society around us. If history has no meaning, what is going to become of us? Will it matter that we lived at all? I would suggest to you that we live in a society in which people have espoused both the optimistic and the pessimistic views at the same time. There is a deep fear, and yet there is this over, overweening optimism that in fact we can do whatever we want. There's a lot I could say about this. Um, I just want to focus on two things today. Maybe three. We'll see. The first is precision. The chronological view is marked by precision. Os Guinness in his book Carpe Diem Redeemed, I mentioned this last week, one of my sources for this series, said that the clock is the most powerful and consequential invention of the Western world. Through the clock, technology now appears to be taking over from faith and philosophy as the primer, uh, primary shaper of time and human experience. The clock is essential to understanding the modern world itself, but certainly to understanding time in the modern world. 
See, one of the aspects of time in the modern world, this chronological view, is this idea of precision. Prior to the modern age, there were, in fact, different ways to measure time, but they were affected by the seasons. So, for example, if you have a sundial and there's a storm, you don't know what time it is. At nighttime, the sundial is of no use. And they tended to be somewhat imprecise, but the clock changed that. And technology has been constantly improved from escapements to pendulums to springs to quartz watches. And now advertisements boast of watches that are accurate to within a second every million years. There's this precision. Along with precision comes the call for punctuality. Guinness mentions, and I've read about this before, that uh, when Lewis and Clark made their expedition to the Pacific Ocean, at a certain point they split up. The, a river they'd come to went in two different directions. And so they said, okay, we're going to come back here in X number of days and we're going to meet up again and decide which way to go. And they did eventually meet nine days later after the agreed time. And in their notes, they described this as relatively punctual. Well, let me ask you, if you were to show up nine days late, would you be referred to as relatively punctual? Yeah, I don't think so. We live in an age in which precision is taken for granted. Lawyers and psychiatrists charge by the hour. Television networks charge advertisers by the second, and so on. And this push for precision has consequences. I'll mention one here. That's pressure. Incredible pressure. With the push for precision, there is also the push for coordination. If you want to catch a plane, you better be there on time. And actually, you need to be there early because you have to go through security and all those things. Um, if you want to see your doctor, you have a time for an appointment. You're supposed to be there at a particular time. Don't be surprised if you have to wait, but you have to be there at a, an appointed time. You can't live by your own reckoning of time. There is this coordination with other people on the planet. This is when we are going to do these things. Just a side note, I do Philippine history, and someone mentioned that he was going to write on this and never did, but in the struggle against the Spaniards, the Spaniards which began, began in a formal way in 1896-97, uh, uh, it was found that the Filipinos would be defeated time and time again in battle because they wouldn't show up at the same time. You know, different towns, you know, with their militias would say, okay, we're going to be at this field uh, Tuesday at three. Well, no one would show up at Tuesday at three, maybe four, maybe five, maybe six. Well, the Spaniards are there, and so the Spaniards made easy work of the whole business. We live our lives within a time schedule, and this leads to pressure. We live in a clock-driven world. Precision is reinforced by coordination. We are driven from behind. We are pulled from in front. We are pressed down from above, told what to do. We are squeezed on all sides. There is pressure. Charles Baudelaire, in his poem, it was in French, but in English, called The Clock. Terrible clock, he writes. God without mercy, mighty power, saying all day, remember, remember and beware. In our age, we speak of killing time, doing time. Killing time is seen as voluntary, but doing time involuntary. It was in 1751 that Henry Fielding wrote the words for the first time, 
Time is money. And now we take that for granted. We speak of buying time. You need to maximize your time. Have quality time. We talk of multitasking so you can make the most of every moment. And for those who hold a covenantal view, if we're not careful, we get sucked into this. And the practice of time becomes our taskmaster and for all the wrong reasons. Precision. The second is, well, I mentioned pressure, but the second is progress. Why is there all this pressure? In a word, progress. It is a word that has reshaped the modern world. In John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, it referred to a journey. In olden times, in ancient times, the king's progress was in fact a royal procession. It was a parade. Uh, Henry VIII made a progress across England to sort of try to unify and get people under control. Now it means something different. Look it up. Google it. The verb is forward or onward movement toward a destination. The noun is move forward or onward in space or time. Look up synonyms for progress. Advance, breakthrough, development, evolution, growth, headway, improvement, increase, momentum. Progress by the modern world's definition is always good. It is good, first of all, but it is always good. It is self-evidently good, and it is unquestionably good. The opposites, reactionary, passé, old-fashioned, traditional, are seen as, well, not good, because progress is what is good. Progress has become a powerful word. It affects our view of time. And progressive has become sort of the magic password used by various camps, political, economic, and so on, to describe their view or their position. The result is, in today's world, if somebody says they're progressive, you can't challenge them. Because progress is good. And if they're progressive, they're moving ahead. There are flaws, though, to this view. The first is that this idea of progress is actually a rip-off. They have ripped off the biblical view of time and hope. That God is doing something in his creation. But because they've ripped this off from scripture, but they've rejected scripture, they have no basis by which to judge the progress that they claim. How do you know you've made progress? What somebody calls progressive, another might call regressive. G.K. Chesterton wrote, Progress is simply a comparative of which we have not settled the superlative. You know, good, better, best. Better is the comparative. We say progress because we actually don't know what the end is. One writer put it this way, the belief that humans are gradually improving is the central article of faith of modern humanism. When wrenched from monotheistic religion, however, it is not so much false as meaningless. I said there are three weaknesses, at least three. The second is that progressivism has become a form of self-congratulations. 
I'm moving ahead. I'm progressive. I've made progress. As much as to pat yourself on the back and say, look at me, how well I have done. Again, to quote another writer, when secular thinkers tell the story of humankind as a story of progress, they flatter themselves that they embody the progress of which they speak. In other words, when they tell the story of human history as that of progress, and we're up here, yeah, we're better than everybody else that came before us. To be progressive is to be self-congratulatory. Look at what I have achieved. Another weakness is that progressivism often takes over from monotheism an absolutist view of truth but without the values or correctives. In other words, scripture tells us that there is such a thing as truth. And for quite a while in the modern age, that's been sort of pushed aside. But now with the idea of progressivism, there is this idea of truth, and I will decide what is true and what is right. And anyone who disagrees with me is on the wrong side of history. But what is your basis for saying that? As a history professor, this is one of the things that really bothers me. There is almost a complete disdain for history. Because if, in fact, we're going up, we're we're progressing, then everything that comes behind is regressive. That's behind, that's below us. And guess what? Not just the time itself, but the people who lived back then. It's a chronological snobbery, I think C.S. Lewis called it. We are better than all those who came before us. And there's a blindness to the reality of human depravity. Edward Gibbon uh, did the classic work of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Actually began, well, I'll get to that in a minute. This is what he wrote. It may be safely assumed that no people, unless the force of nature has changed, will relapse into their original barbarisms. We may therefore acquiesce in the pleasing conclusion that every age of the world has increased and still increases the real wealth, the happiness, the knowledge, and perhaps the virtue of the human race. He wrote this in 1776. Actually, with six volumes, it was finished in 1789. He died five years later at the height of the reign of terror in France, which until the Holocaust was considered the epitome of human evil in modern history. In both the Holocaust and the Reign of Terror, the French Revolution, you have highly educated people, prosperous people, a civilized nation in each case that relapses into barbarism, does unimaginable things. And at least in the Reign of Terror, um, you find that they end up turning on their own people, like Robespierre, Okay, at this point, you might be thinking, um, Damon, I came to church today. I thought I was going to hear a sermon. Um, And for the last part of your sermon, it seems more like a history lecture. It seems more like a lecture than something we should hear at church. We've heard little of scripture or of God, spiritual matters generally. What I've been trying to do today in this sermon, not a lecture, is to explain the modern view of time, the chronological view of time which is the covenantal view, the biblical view, without God. And I've done this because this is the water in which we swim. 
This is what we find in the society and culture around us. And I think that we have taken it in without even realizing it. Don't ask a fish what water is. In many ways, don't ask us what the surrounding culture says about time because we just swim and oftentimes are oblivious. There are at least three areas I think that we have been sucked in by this. The first is who gives meaning to our lives. The crucial difference between the covenantal view and the chronological view is that who gives meaning to life. The covenantal says it is God. It is God who says this moment is important. And this person is made in my image and has significance. And history is going somewhere. The chronological view says that we in fact decide. The society around us decides. And therefore we want to please people. We want to get we want to be on TV. You know, we want TMZ to, to hound us and follow us, you know, so people will know who we are. We allow the world to define what is truly important. Remember a Dutch pastor, Wim Reitkirk, uh, said he was so offended when he was in the United States decades ago and he was listening to a Christian radio station and they talked about a successful pastor. Really? You use the word success with pastor? That's using the world's standards to give meaning to what a pastor is doing. We've been sucked in by this. The second way in which the world affects us is the pressure of time. In many ways, we are very, well, there's very little difference between us and the people around us because we feel the pressure of time. There's a schedule. We've got to meet a goal. As though somehow that gives the meaning to our life. And then the third, which points back to the first two, is the idea of progress. I was trying to think what should be the text for a sermon, the second in a series on a theology of time. And I considered a variety of passages. One was in our prayer of confession today, Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Or from Ephesians 5. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The King James has it, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Or perhaps Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. But I came to the conclusion that perhaps the best text for us today is in Romans chapter 12. It's very familiar, I think, to most of you. Verse number 2. Romans 12.2 Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. After World War II, uh, there was a Frenchman named Jacques Ellul, who... uh, actually was forbidden to teach. He was a college professor because he opposed the Nazis and his wife had to move from northern France to southern France and uh, live off the land, basically. He continued to read and to study. And after the war, um, he came to see that 
there was something not quite right, that the Christian world had sort of split into two factions. One was, let's do politics. Let's do politics and take over. And the other was, yeah, let, forget the world, we'll just go to church and do spiritual things. In 1948, he wrote a book called Presence in the Modern World. Uh, he taught law. He taught sociology. Uh, he did, during the war, serve as a pastor. And he went on to write some very significant books, The Technological Society, Humiliation of the Word, uh, Propaganda. They're upstairs if you want to go look at them. But in writing the first book, he said that he needed a key. He knew what he wanted to say, but he needed a key to somehow serve as a guide, as a compass, that he could instruct his fellow Christians as how they were to live after this, this horrible war in which they had been victorious. And so there was a temptation to become authoritarian. And yeah, we, we will rule the world. So what are Christians supposed to do? And he found it in our text. He writes in the introduction, do not be conformed to the present age. And he concluded that there are two ways in which we can conform. The first is voluntary, in which we actively join things and say, yeah, this is the way to go. I believe with, I, I hold to this political position or this economic view or whatever. I'm going to go this way. But the second, he said, was much more powerful. It was involuntary and unconscious. Something that is so pervasive, so evident, that in fact we don't notice it. We don't think about it. We don't question it. And I would suggest to you that the chronological view of time is one of those things. We have become conformed to the pattern of this age. The word in Greek is age, but uh, some translate it as world. And Elul argued that this is not static. That is, you can't say the world, that the world for us is the same as it was for Paul. No, every age has a different spirit guiding it. And in our age, it is this view of time that is chronological, that is pressure-packed, that says you must conform that tells us we will tell you what is important and what is not. As God's people, we are to view time as that which God has created, as that which is precious, as a gift, but as that which God gives meaning. A short life, a long life. That's in God's hands, and God is the one who gives it meaning. The reason I've spent so much time on the chronological view of time is because that's what's around us. And as God's people, we need to say, yeah, we're not going to do that. It's very tempting to, because it sounds very similar to the covenantal view. They've just gotten rid of God. And we're like, well, we'll just put God back in, and then we'll be on the same page. No, we should not conform. In this age, the issue has been the source of meaning. And who will you follow? Scripture or the spirit of the age? In this age, there has been tremendous pressure. Are we going to accept the pressure, give in to the pressure? 
by the way, I'm not suggesting that we all throw out our clocks and our watches, but I think we should not allow that to define us as well. And will we buy into the illusion of progress? Do you think that people are less sinful today than they were a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago? No, we've progressed. Morally, we're going uphill. Yeah, no, that's not what's happened. And as God's people, we should have a biblical view of time. This gift that God has created, where he has put us, and to which he gives meaning. And for which we are responsible. As Paul tells us, redeem the time. Make the best use of time. Not because of pressure, not because of precision, not because of progress, but this is what God has called us to do. He's put us where we are, both in terms of space, here in Los Angeles, and time, in the year 2020. Let's pray together. Our Father, in many ways, we don't want to stand out. We don't want to be the oddball. So when it comes to the matter of time, we go along with the program. But sometimes we haven't even thought about that. We simply assume that's the way things are. In a culture that is dictated to by the clock, And now it's not simply a matter of hours or minutes and seconds, but of nanoseconds. We simply assume that's, that's the way it is. And in the process, we've lost something really important. We've lost a sense that time is gift. It's a gift of your creation. And you are the one who gives it meaning. You are the one who gives it significance. We should not run after uh, accolades as the hymn we sang, Riches I Heed Not, Nor Man's Empty Praise. No, you are the one. You are our inheritance now and always. Somehow we've bought the lie that we can, in fact, make things better on our own that we're so far superior to those who came before us. Which then, if we're not careful, causes us to lose confidence in Scripture because it was written so long ago. And we know so much more than those people did. By your grace, by your Spirit, may we not be conformed to this present age but have a biblical view of time. This wonderful gift that you've given us. And may we understand that you give our lives meaning and significance. And above all, that you love us. You love us deeply. You loved us so much that you sent your Son to redeem us and all of creation and time itself. 
I know that a lot of information has been given today by your spirit. May we think on these things, meditate on them. Begin to understand what is a biblical view of time and put it into practice. Thank you for bringing us together today. Some requests have been made for prayer for Heidi and her time of delivery was supposed to be a week ago. Watch over her and the baby. We pray for a safe delivery for the De La Rosa family during this time of grief. Comfort them and draw them to yourself. Thank you for bringing us together today. Thank you for bringing Tess back to us safely. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.